I think academic hospitals are specially created. They are steeped in this amazing research. They have very curious people who are extremely creative, always asking the right questions, always probing how we can do things better. For me, it's super inspiring as a designer because design is about asking the right questions. And doctors and nurses are really good at that. They are trained to ask good questions. And so designers can learn a lot from doctors and nurses. Welcome to Design Lab. I'm your host, Bon Ku. On this show, we bring on some pretty cool guests and we explore the question, how might we design healthier lives? Today's guest is Jules Sherman. She is the director of a new biodesign program with Innovation Ventures at Children's National Hospital. In this role, she teaches innovation and design methods to clinicians and co-creates novel medical products in collaboration with doctors and nurses with the intent to commercialize the inventions. She lectures at the University of Maryland's bioengineering department as well. Previously, Jules taught at the Hassel Plattner Institute of Design, also known as the D School, at Stanford University. At Stanford, she also worked as a product designer for the Safety Learning Lab for Neonatal and Maternal Care. She is the founder of Maternal Life LLC, where Jules co-invents and develops medical products that improves healthcare outcomes for women and children. Her first product is Primo Lacto. It's a closed system for colostrum collection. And she's currently working on a product called NUMA with colleagues from Stanford Medicine. And what it does, it facilitates delayed cord clamping for the preterm infant population. Another product is Kangarobe. It's a garment that makes skin-to-skin care in the neonatal ICU safer and easier. Jules' professional background is super diverse. It ranges from consumer products like kitchen housewares, architectural hardware, and personal electronic response systems. You as a listener can support us here at Design Lab. It's so simple to do. Go on your phone, open up Apple Podcasts, and give us five stars. And you can also leave us a comment. Follow us on whatever platform you use to consume podcasts. But Apple Podcasts, right now, it's the only way that you can rate and leave comments for a podcast. It helps others find the show. And we love it when we hear from you on social media. Please reach out to us. Now here's my conversation with Jules Sherman. Jules Sherman, welcome to Design Lab. I'm so happy that you're on the show. I am so thrilled to be here. So you are the director of a new biodesign program at Children's National Hospital in DC. That sounds like a really cool program. Can you tell us about your work? Yeah. Yeah. So I started working for Children's National about a year ago with the Nursing Resource and Innovation Council as a consultant. I was teaching uh, design thinking methodology and some biodesign methodology with them and developing nurse-led medical products. And this was going really well over the last year. And so uh, Kalale Eskandanian, who's the vice president of innovation at the hospital, asked me to come on full-time 
and to lead the biodesign program, which would incorporate both nurse innovation and doctors who might want to participate in the program. So it's education and it's also product development. So I work in the innovation ventures group, and that's within the Sheikh Zayed Institute for Pediatric Surgical Innovation. And um, the innovation ventures group focuses on turning research into products that can actually help the patient population. And Mm. we can do lots of wonderful research at academic institutions, but if we don't have any kind of uh, mechanism to get that research um, out into the world to help people. That's a pity because there's so much money given to us through the NIH and FDA and different organizations, philanthropy. It's important to, we have like a, I think we have a responsibility really to translate that research. So if I'm a pediatrician at the hospital that you work at and I have this like great idea for a medical device. Do I, how does that work? I email you and then I, can I talk to you? Like, how do I take my idea that's in my head as a clinician and translate that into something meaningful for my patients? Yeah, that's a really good question. So we are working on an intake form and Before the hospital had something like an intake form that was, it was just a little bit vague. So people would write something down that might've been a little bit difficult for the lay person to understand. And so there wasn't really a method to disclosing a need. Mm. And I'm emphasizing need because we don't want to scare people away with asking them for solutions for Mm. a problem. So we emphasize the need and we're redoing the intake form to have the clinicians write the need in the design thinking or biodesign need statement formula. So these are things that I'm teaching. Tell me about that. What does that look like? So design thinking and biodesign have different need statement formulas. So the biodesign innovation process follows three phases, identify, invent, and implement. And Paul Yock wrote a book with a few other folks called Biodesign. And we are following that book's recommendation for how to write a biodesign need statement formula, which which is a way to insert your problem for insert your population in order to insert your measurable outcome. So an example might be a way to identify and communicate the onset of mastitis early for lactating mothers in order to reduce antibiotic prescriptions by 50%. So that, that's so cool because I work a lot with other clinicians and students and researchers, and sometimes it's hard for them to express exactly what their need is. And it gets like a little bit confusing and that's so succinct and concrete. That is, we should all be using that. That's so cool. Is it out there on a website or something that people can? Oh yeah. At? 
that's on the Stanford Biodesign Fellowship website. It's definitely out there, um, published online. People can look up all of that information and they can also buy the biodesign textbook. But such a statement is really akin to like an elevator pitch. Mm. And it really um, allows you to clarify the importance of the issue and help secure resources to address it. So it's super important to understand who you're solving the problem for and what you want the outcome to be. Mm. So then we really like that type of need statement, especially for the clinical population, because it's, it is very concrete. But there's another type of need statement that I like to teach this group. And that's the design thinking need statement, or we also call it the point of view statement. Mm-hmm. And this formula goes like this. User's name, including some sort of empathetic language, needs a better way to user's goal, which is a verb, because of a surprising insight. So this statement makes the emotions sort of king. Mm -hmm. And it um, also is very focused on the specific user. So when I say the name of a user, I mean like the individual we're talking about, the individual story. So like an example might be Maria, a recent immigrant and a single mom recently discharged from the neonatal ICU, needs a way to measure, track, and communicate milk her baby consumes while breastfeeding because she has nobody at home to reassure her that her baby has been eating enough, nor does she feel comfortable calling her doctor's office with questions due to the language barrier. So as you can see, these are two very different types of need statements. One really focuses on underlying emotional issues Mm -hmm. that are stopping Maria from getting the care she really needs and her baby, the care it needs versus really focusing on like a, a bottom line or a, a, a measurable outcome yeah. like biodesign need statement. So those are two very different ways of approaching design. And I teach my students that I teach the clinicians that, and there's no right or wrong. I think that both are important when you're looking at designing for healthcare. Yeah, because you can't capture those emotions, those fears or hope or desires on in a data set. And but it's it's important because we're humans. And like, how do you create that point of view statement? How do you capture that data? It's very difficult to do. So I, I love that methodology. You have taught clinicians for a while now, right? You were doing that at, at when you were at Stanford at the D school and biodesign. And what is that like? Cause sometimes dealing with physicians is a little bit difficult. We're very kind of stringent, I think, or constrained in our thinking. Is it sometimes frustrating trying to teach us? So at the D school, I, I taught at the D school for about eight years, healthcare design classes for interdisciplinary design students. So that means students from all over Stanford from different schools. And I always taught these classes with clinicians. Okay. So I always co-taught with doctors and other types of clinicians. And 
the doctors that I taught with were always very open to design. They wanted to teach with me. They were very curious about design. So it was, there was no problem bringing them into this environment and having them share their knowledge and expertise with the backdrop of design thinking being the goal to teach students design thinking methods, but with like complex medical issues as like the basis for the class. So that was never like an issue. Now, when um, I'm teaching doctors and nurses within a hospital, it is a little bit different. I notice that some of them naturally are more drawn to it and others are a little bit maybe intimidated by the notion of innovation, which is why I really try to focus just on needs Mm. and solutions and I think what I've learned is that I've been helping this group, this nurse innovation group, become more creatively confident, more secure in their ideas and creating a safe space for them to really share the needs. I think that's really the first step is Mm -hmm. knowing that they really want to do a good job and they don't really want to reveal things sometimes that they're having problems with because it's not maybe the norm. And to create that safe space to share the needs. So, and then bring them through the making, the making process, the synthesis process and the prototyping process. So they learn the skills it takes to develop solutions, even if they don't have the execution skills themselves. That's what I'm there for. I'm like their catalyst essentially. And they're really there to identify the problems, which is the most important part, by the way figuring out what to make. Yeah. Because I, th- I feel like in a clinical setting, we jump to the solution space so quickly. And I also, we, we do get intimidated because a lot of us aren't used to the making aspect of it. And and because we don't have expertise of it, maybe because we, we didn't take a multiple choice question on, test on it or go through formal training that we feel like we could outsource that to the designer and how do you combat that and get the clinician or healthcare worker to to make because i struggled with that in my classes of trying to get someone to draw something or to put something on paper or to represent it visually and a lot of times a knee-jerk reaction is like well i'm terrible at drawing i can't do that Yeah, I think it's important to show people how they can communicate their ideas through drawing using simple symbols, as an example, to show a process or to show different simple shapes that that they can use to share ideas. So drawing is, is one of my favorite activities to do myself, just because it it really, first of all, it really relaxes me and I, it also helps to teach you how to see. So I do encourage my students, whether they're clinicians or college students to, to draw, it helps them think through a problem, but not to get held back by it not looking perfect. I mean, I get nurses drawing on, you know, post-it notes and ruled paper, these very scratchy ink drawings that are a little difficult to understand sometimes, but I I ask questions and I bring them through it. And I try to, I try to accept 
the level they're at with those types of skills, because that's not what they were trained at, you know, to do. And I look at my role as the, the translator, as the translator of the ideas. And I make that clear that I'm not looking for, you know, Leonardo da Vinci level of drawing. So I think it's a lot about encouraging people through humor, through sharing my own trials and tribulations in the design world, through being vulnerable myself about what I have problems with in in design. Even though I've been doing it now for like 25 years, I still, I still struggle. It's not something that you can, you can always be a master at because we're always learning about new problems. And when you're learning about new problems, you have to sort of go into it as a, almost like a naive child each Mm. time to, so that you go in without preconceived notions. And I, I guess I just try to share my own vulnerability with them. And I think that helps them become more confident. Mm. And I want to get into some of the projects that you are currently working on, have worked on in the past, but I was curious to know about your journey into this space because you come from a very kind of creative background, right? You went to the Rhode Island School of Design for undergrad, then you have an MFA in design from Stanford. And then you said you were actually at one point designing theater sets in France. How do you make that jump into the non-creative field of healthcare? Oh, I don't think of healthcare as not creative. I think of it as incredibly creative. I love it. I absolutely love it. I, I'm i sort of an artist disguised as a designer. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I started my life with my dad, who's a painter. My dad's also a psychologist, by the way. He taught um, PhD students for 25 years, clinical psychology, but he's also a very um, impressive painter. And so I grew up with this creativity around me and was always encouraged to draw. And that was my first love. So drawing, and then I got into printmaking. Uh, Printmaking became my uh, art of choice in high school. I loved the technical aspects of printmaking, learning all of the technicalities of etching and lithography and intaglio and all these different techniques. And then in college, I wanted to do printmaking and my parents were like, I don't think that's a great idea. So I decided through the encouragement of some friends at RISD to try industrial design. I didn't even know what industrial design was. And I learned about it and my 3D foundation teacher said to me, so what are you planning on majoring in? And I said, printmaking. And she said, oh no. She said, you really need to go down to the industrial design department. We need more women down there. That's what she said. And I was like, wow, (laughs) I'll check it out. And it was like metal shops and glass shops and wood shops and plastic shops. And I was just like completely intimidated, but I, I have this habit of doing things that intimidate me. So I signed up (laughs) (laughs) 
And I proceeded to really, really enjoy myself learning so many things I never had the opportunity to learn, you know, in the metal shop. And I love the metal shop, learning about how to use the lathe and the bridge port and bend wire and, and stuff. I ended up making products actually in college that were very medically inspired. And what's an example of that? Yeah, yeah. Do you remember? Yeah, I actually pulled out some pictures to show you. Oh, cool. I wanted to show you this one in particular. Wow, that is beautiful. Can you describe it? This is a medicine cabinet. And it's based on Chinese medicine. So the hierarchy of herbs in Chinese medicine. And at the time, I was actually seeing a Chinese medicine doctor for my skin. I was having skin issues. And I was really uh, depressed, actually, about my skin problems. And this is a mortise and pestle that showed with like a little area to grind up important herbs. And this shows the hierarchy. And these are, these are blown glass and welded. So the glass containers are hand-blown and then hand-cast glass backing backdrop to the vessels and then a cast glass mortise and and pestle and then there's like a I guess like a, a, a forged and welded frame for everything this hangs in my parents home now Oh, but, that's so cool. I wish the listeners could see that, but if you could send me a pic of that, I'd love, I'd love to share on social when we when yeah. we drop this show. Yeah. This is a skin light. <laughs> oh, so you made all that. That's incredible. Yeah. It's all handmade, hand lathes with aluminum and a transformer in the base and spun aluminum uh, parts here. I actually got those spun at Lightelier in Providence, Rhode Island. And this sort of skin that I created out of latex and watercolor. And, and so, so with this act of making inspired by medicine, how do you make that leap then into your current work? So then like for 15 years, I was in consumer products. <laughs> I, I, I ended up working for like restoration hardware and limited brands and uh -huh made and all these big companies. And what I learned there was really the importance of emotion when it comes to product design and what makes people respond to products and collections of products on an emotional level. Hmm. And also the power of co-creation with buyers. Hmm. And that's where I learned about the first learned about the, the power of co-creation because when you can co-create with a buyer of say Costco, they love it. They want to be a part of it. And then they buy your product. And I actually really enjoyed working with the buyers there at Costco, you know, but I burned out on the fashion driven consumer product world at 15 years in, you know, I was bored. I knew there was more to design. I started researching places where I could learn more. I had been reading Tom Kelly's books at the time, like the 10 faces of innovation and the work of David Kelly, his brother and yep. IDO and all that stuff. Yep. And then you just started teaching at the D school. 
So then, no. So, so I'll just, I'll quickly try to explain what happened, but I had always wanted to go back to graduate school for my master's degree, but I didn't have the money. So I saved my money for all those years. And I finally saved enough and applied to one graduate school, which was Stanford. I had read about the D school and what they were doing there. I wanted to go. I wanted to learn about design thinking. I knew that's what was missing from my repertoire of skills. And so at 37, I applied to graduate school. It's never too late. I was seven months pregnant when I got the acceptance letter. And what's really ironic is they gave me a full scholarship. Whoa, that's amazing. So it totally blew my mind. So of course I had to go and I gave birth to my baby four months before entering graduate school. And I quit my job and we moved up here to Palo Alto so I could attend. Best decision I ever made. But I'll tell you the birth of my child defined how I would spend those next two years. I had a textbook traumatic birth experience when I was 38. It included an epidural that did not take. It included clinicians who didn't believe it didn't take. It included 10 hours of labor, a shoulder dystocia, an episiotomy, and a hemorrhage. So I really actually thought I was going to die. And I thought my kid was going to die. And unfortunately, my husband was in the room at the time, the whole time this was happening. And I think he was traumatized by the whole thing himself. So because... I was so busy with the transition to motherhood and graduate school directly after the birth of my child. I didn't have time to really consciously process all of those issues. But for me, working out these issues came through in my work Hmm. at Stanford. And a lot of that work focused on healthcare design, specifically for birth and and for breastfeeding. So... Also, I looked at in graduate school, I also focused on telehealth and family communication as well. And it wasn't until my child was four and I was teaching the class, redesigning the hospital birth experience with Dr. William Ryan, who was the director of the neonatal ICU at Stanford's Lucille Packard Children's Hospital, that I came across Cheryl, Cheryl Titano Beck's book, Traumatic Birth. And her research focuses on postpartum depression and post-traumatic stress disorder due to traumatic childbirth. And it wasn't until I read this book that I understood what had happened to me during those days in the hospital. And I decided to go to EMDR therapy to understand that better. And well, EMDR therapy, for those who don't know, is designed to resolve unprocessed traumatic memories in your brain. Mm -hmm. And then after grad school, I had this amazing opportunity to work with Dr. Henry Lee and Dr. Lou Halamick at the Safety Learning Lab for Infant and Maternal Care. So between 2014 and 2020, that was a life-changing professional opportunity for me at Stanford. They heard that I was interested in the space of safety and labor and delivery, and they needed an interdisciplinary team to apply for a specific AHRQ grant, Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality. 
and it was like a $4 million grant and we won the grant and I had, and I worked with them for almost uh, about five years doing research on how to improve safety and labor and delivery. And I designed a few different products that were actually still trying to get to market. And I have to say that Dr. Henry Lee has been one of my um, most important mentors in my professional career as a healthcare designer. And he continues to teach me. So just wanted to make a shout out to, to him. I taught the classes at Stanford with Dr. Lee, Dr. Ryan, and a number of other clinicians between 2013 and 2020. And it was absolutely a cathartic endeavor because I was essentially working through my own trauma when I co-taught redesigning the hospital birth experience and designing for safety and labor and delivery. And let's see, medical device design, identifying problems through observation and designing for pediatric feeding challenges. All of these classes couldn't have been possible without these amazing doctors like Dr. Ryan, Dr. Lee, Dr. Nicole Yamada, Dr. Ruth Ann Crystal, Dr. Janine Fuerk. I mean, it, the list goes on of all this, um, these amazing people who helped me teach these courses. Thank you for sharing that story. And you've created so many different types of like medical devices and products that have been patented. And you're also the founder of a company called Maternal Life as, as well. Can you share um, a few of your favorite products? Yeah. So Primo Lacto is really a product that I had worked on for a number of years that was an answer to one of my own problems, which was colostrum collection. So it's essentially a closed system for colostrum collection for women who have either premature babies or babies who don't have a sucking reflex or any other number of feeding issues where they can't breastfeed after birth. Mm-hmm. And so I created- For those who don't know, what what is colostrum? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Colostrum is the first milk that a woman produces. It's usually more viscous than mature milk. So it's a bit thicker and often, so it has a lot of antibodies in it and things that help to protect the infant against a number of diseases and illnesses. So it's super important that baby gets their mother's colostrum. Even if a mom doesn't want to continue on with a full course of breastfeeding, I think just giving that baby their colostrum, it's like their first inoculation almost to protect their gut and help with the first, like the meconium, the first stool that, that they have all that stuff. It's just super important. So I was not able to do, to breastfeed after birth. And so it was really nerve wracking to be told in the hospital that I needed to be uh, feeding my baby formula because I wasn't able to breastfeed. And so they were trying to pump the cloth. We were trying to use a pump and it wasn't working because the colostrum got stuck in the valve of the pump. So mm. it was really an engineering issue. And mm. so with my co-inventors, I created a, an adapter that went between the breast pump flange and the, and the valve of the pump. And it just fits in between. And then it connects directly to an enteral syringe. So it essentially reroutes the colostrum away from the valve and down into an enteral syringe directly. 
And it just makes it way easier to collect every drop and to um, feed your baby with a syringe or uh, with a swab afterwards. It, it's such a simple solution. I saw that there's a video on it on your website, right? So for those who want to take a look, what's your website where they can find the video? Oh, they can find the video at lansano.com under, I think it's medical products or hospital products, I believe. And okay. it's it was acquired... The product was acquired by Lansano in 2018. So is it on the market now? So people it is. can buy it's it? Like, yeah, it's in, I think, I think the last I knew it was in around 600 or 700 hospitals in the United wow. States. Wow. Yeah. That's so amazing. Uh, there's it is a problem that you identify personally and to be able to design a solution that went to market to help other moms must be just an incredible feeling. Yeah, I think after that was acquired, I and I was getting like the spreadsheet showing where it was being distributed. I thought to myself, like, I feel like my, I felt like at that moment that I had done something that could help other people through design. And I, at that point, I felt like, okay, this is where I need to be. And I, that's just the direction I wanted to go. I wanted to use my talents to help other people. And it's just really important to me while I'm on this planet to do something that is helpful for people. And you talked about that theme in your work of turning pain into progress. I love that. Yeah, that's a big one for me. Yeah, I think my main motivation with my work is understanding other people's pain. It's something that I find fascinating, why people uh, struggle with different conditions or different chronic illness, what what brought them to struggle with a chronic illness, mental disorders, anything that people struggle with, I'm fascinated by. I I read all kinds of books about folks who've had personal health care issues and how it's changed them or people who struggle with things like diabetes or um, obesity or even folks who have mental disorders, I enjoy reading papers and essays about that kind of thing. I, I think there was a point in my teaching where I was able to like look beyond my own pain and sort of get to a place in my work and in the teaching where I wanted to understand others' pain much more than my own. Mm. And like, that was a moment when I started becoming more interested in on families who had kids with complex medical complexity, kids with mm-hmm. medical complexity and specifically designing stuff that would help those families with the issues they dealt with having difficulties with their children's illnesses and complex care issues. I ended up teaching those classes with Dr. Lee Sanders who's the chief of general pediatrics at Stanford um, and the co-founder of the LPCH complex primary care clinic. And he really showed me uh, a broader view of the issues around, around problems during birth and what happens afterwards. Mm the journey people have to take with kids who 
have all kinds of issues, healthcare issues. And, and that's like kind of where I, f- I feel like I really grew a lot more in my teaching and in myself was when I could connect with people and their pain that was foreign to my own, do you see like a foreign in a way? So my empathy skills really grew at that point. I'm going to have to bring you back for another episode just on, on how you develop that deep empathy. It's pretty incredible. And I could talk with you for another few hours on that. And oh my gosh, we're almost out of time, but I wanted to ask you a couple more questions if possible. You had mentioned uh, a statement before you said, healthcare is incredibly creative. And I just was taking it. I just had to like pause there. Like how, like why, where, where do you see that? What leads you to say a statement like that? Cause I think healthcare is cr- incredibly anti-creative. Well, I, I think that if you look at the history of medicine, there's a lot of art in the history of medicine. It's not all linear and rule following. I mean, it couldn't have gotten to this point without experimentation and prototyping and taking risks often on the backs of people that we shouldn't have done that with. But I have to say that it it does incorporate a lot of artistry and decision-making that is creative. And not only that, but you have to work in teams. You have to work in teams of people who are very different from yourself. And that requires creativity. I see the creativity all the time. When I was working at Packard, they were so creative with trying to understand how to perform better workflows, how to give medications more easily, how they were always experimenting. I think academic hospitals are especially creative. They are steeped in this amazing research. They have very curious people who are extremely creative, always asking the right questions, always probing how we can do things better. And for me, it's super inspiring as a designer because design is about asking the right questions. And doctors and nurses are really good at that. They are trained to ask good questions. And so designers can learn a lot from doctors and nurses. Not only that, but I have seen in real time, nurses pack together solutions using existing medical products to solve a problem that they have in the NICU or solve a problem that they have in the ICU or solve a problem that they have in the OR. And it is fascinating to see how they can just hack together these solutions with stuff that's around them. So for me, that's super inspiring because it's prototyping everywhere. Yeah. I love doctors and nurses. I think they are some of the most creative people I've ever met. Thank you for that. And I I love in your email that I'm going to read this sentence that you wrote. You said, people wilt when they are unable to express themselves creatively and I appreciate the space that you have made in healthcare for clinicians to be able to create. Because I think it's so important to us as humans and healthcare can be so constrained. It's so busy 
and we don't have a lot of these spaces. So thank you for creating that through your work. We do appreciate that. And I wish we could talk so about all your amazing projects, but people can find out about your work on your website, right? What's your website? My personal website is jewelsherman.com. Cool. Check it out. There's so much amazing stuff there. And I thank you, Jules, for coming on the show. It was so wonderful to have you on. Oh, it's been so great to be here, Bon. Thank you so much for inviting me. You can find Jules Sherman on Instagram at Redesign Healthcare. We have a Design Lab podcast newsletter. Please sign up for it. You can sign up by going to our Twitter account. The link is there. Our Twitter handle is at Design Lab Pod. Or you can just reach out to me by Twitter or Instagram. On Twitter, I can be found at B-O-N-K-U. On Instagram at D-R-B-O-N-K-U. And remember, open up Apple Podcasts, give us five stars, leave us a comment. Design Lab was produced by Rob Puglisi. Our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston and the cover design by Eden Liu.